Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, just up front, I want to mention that on this podcast and the other shaman and scientist podcast that we're putting out, we are going to be talking about psychedelics, so, and by which I mean psychedelic drugs a bit. So just be aware. We're going to handle this in a mature, science-backboned uh, sense. But uh, I know that this subject is probably not for everybody. So just a fair warning that uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. And we do not advocate the use of psychedelic substances and illicit substances at all and urge you not to do them. But the science behind them is really fascinating. The current scientific investigations of of how they affect our mind and what they can help uncover about how our minds work is uh, totally game, totally in our wheelhouse. Uh, So we just uh, had to cover it. We've covered it a little bit in the past. So here are another couple of slices from that particular cake. Yeah, and we just couldn't help it because a lot of times we talk about what is consciousness, and we'll get deeper into that question in this podcast. But psychedelics, turns out, can help us answer that question or get a little bit closer to what we think consciousness is. Um, but all of this was actually inspired by a talk that you went to. Yes, and you went to, in a sense, you in I the, traveled in the form via, of an iPhone. yeah, yeah, via the wonderful recording that you took of it. Um, it was a talk at Emory University, yeah. Yes, uh, it was called "For I Am the Black Jaguar." Well, it was part of the "For I Am the Black Jaguar" exhibit, which is a an, an art exhibit they did uh, having to do with shamanistic visionary experience in ancient American art. So, uh, a lot of ancient American art that depicts uh, things that that uh, you know it might be jaguars, it might be mushroom men, things of this nature that have something to do with shamanistic traditions, uh, particularly as they relate to um, the consumption of of psychedelic psychotropic substances. And a lot of it, too, is this unity with nature and this mm-hmm. unity of, of man, or the duality, I should say, of, of human and animal, and then the bringing together of, of these different aspects right. of our humanness. And the, the talk that I attended uh, was given by Dr. Catherine McLean, uh, and also uh, Dr. Charles uh, Raison was there as well. But McLean is uh, particularly interesting because she is involved with some really groundbreaking investigations at John Hopkins, uh, where they are r- looking into... Uh, again, how these substances affect the human mind and human consciousness and human perceptions and what that can tell us about how our brains actually work. Because one of the things she, she pointed out in her talk is that, you know, we're, we're talking about how these things change our consciousness, mm-hmm. affect our consciousness, and we already have a, a difficult time actually saying what human consciousness is and how it works. To get back to the title of the episode, uh, we're talking about the show. I like the voice she did, so can you do that again? Which one? The the title of not just the episode, but of the exhibit. Oh, For I Am the Black Jaguar. Yes, thank See, you. See, I, w- I was listening to an old uh, Timothy Leary album earlier to get kind of stoked in. Because mm-hmm. Leary was first a scientist, then a shaman. And uh, anyway, we're going to get into that a little more. But <laughs> uh, on the surface of things, you have the shaman in one category and the scientist in the other, right? Dragging in a lot of stereotypes here, but... The shaman, you think of the shaman, you think of somebody that's spiritual. They're ritualistic. They're magical. They're heartfelt. They might have a really long beard and varying degrees of robes or no robes at all, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Man or woman. Man or woman. Then you have the scientist, which again can be a man or woman, but logical, meticulous, reasoned. Um, 
with a certain amount of distance between themselves and their their feelings and the subject matter they're looking into. So we, on, on the surface of things, we would tend to think of these as very different different people, very different modes of perception when it comes to um, the realities of the world and the realities of the mind. Mm-hmm. But the curious thing, okay, is that all right? So the shaman he looks inward. He or she looks inward at the mysteries of the soul and human consciousness. And so, too, of course, does the cognitive neuroscientist. So, um, you know, the, the questions of who are we? Uh, what's the root cause of, of human suffering? How do we achieve liberation from it? How can we treat mental illness? Questions of these natures uh, nature are on, on various levels covered by both sides. So while they're, they're very different, if you were to form a Venn diagram, you know, with the two circles with partial overlap, and you had one circle as the shaman, one circle as the, the neuroscientist, there would be a definite overlap there. Now, of course, the shaman helps you explore these questions by bringing you into a sacred space, producing a tray of magical substances that, when consumed, alter your perception uh, and experience of reality, setting you on a journey of exploration. Meanwhile, the scientist brings you into a lab, right, gives you a pill that might be a placebo, and then runs some tests on you, maybe throws you into a brain uh, imaging machine or hooks you up to some sensors, right? These seem like very different scenarios that one might find oneself in. But then there's also some interesting overlap here as well, particularly at John Hopkins University School of Medicine. That's where, again, Dr. Catherine McLean conducts her research, along with a very talented assortment of, uh, of professionals. And they find themselves not going completely halfway between the shaman and the scientists, but entering a little more into that shamanistic territory because they keep like a calm meditative space mm-hmm. to put the test subjects in when they are given some of these psychedelic substances. And Catherine McLean in this talk at Emory actually spoke a bit about her role as a kind of guide for these people too because they end up um, trying to to color their experiences to an, to an extent, you know, uh, to to guide their trip, as it were, in a direction that's more positive so that they can study it. Yeah, we talked about this a bit in our um, podcast about hallucinogens and uh, stage four cancer patients who were taking hallucinogens in an effort to try to um, get over this huge obstacle of fear that was really actually um, just sort of affecting them on a level where they were like deer in the headlights. They right. couldn't even operate in the space of their lives anymore. And so, um, you know, we've talked about this idea where in a lab setting, you want to have a level of trust. You want to make it as comforting as possible. And so the researchers, the scientists, are, as you say, taking on this uh, persona of guide, of spiritual guide to a certain extent because they have to guide people through this. And I think it's really interesting that Kathleen McLean is also a Buddhist and she does kind of inhabit that space of the shaman from time to time. Yeah, heavy in the meditation and all that. And I can't help to think about another past podcast um, having to do with magicians and neuroscience. Because, mm-hmm. again, you've got neuroscience looking at magicians, um, looking at these hundreds of years old practices and trying to learn something about reality and illusion and how our mind tricks us. And what is so central to this idea of uh mind trickery, I think it's something called the monkey mind. And probably a lot of you out there are familiar with this concept that this constant chatter in our brains 
um, can sometimes hamstring us when we're trying to accomplish things in our lives. Um, and of course, this all points back to the question of consciousness and this idea about whether or not uh, consciousness is actually a static thing. Now, McLean in her talk says, I'm not quite sure consciousness is something that is coherent. Um, but again, it's this idea of trying to get into what's going on in these three pounds of computational material in our brains. Um, she says, you know, it's hard to, to really try to pin it down and figure out what's going on. She says we can't explain normal consciousness in terms of neuroscience, so explaining altered states of consciousness is even more difficult. And um, I also wanted to point this out, too, as we begin to delve into consciousness and the monkey mind. Um, I've brought this up before. There was a study by Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert and Matthew Killingsworth, and they actually developed an iPhone app that would track people's um, waking states and their ability to concentrate and so on and so forth. And something like uh, 2,200 people participated in this study. And what they found was that mind wandering is something that takes up half of our time. Yes. And that seems pretty big, but when you step back and you look at it throughout the day, you know, how when you're not speaking, when you're not um, doing something that really requires you to fire on all four cylinders, what are you doing? You're daydreaming, right? Yeah. So hence you've got this monkey mind and hence you have this idea that maybe some of this consciousness points back to this chatter in our brains. Yeah. there uh, You see that this represented various ways to another um, out, modes of thought outside of science. Uh, there's always the classic um, vision of the the guy with a, a demon on one shoulder and an angel on the other. These little voices that are chattering at him saying, you should be doing this. No, you should be doing this. You should steal that candy bar. No, you should pay for that candy bar with, with hard-earned money. You Do know, you steal it? Um, I, I always try and compromise. Steal half of it. Hmm. Buy the other half. You know. But um, it's the, the classic moral dilemma, whether to, to steal the candy bar. But then you also have people like New Age guru Eckhart Tolle, who calls it the egoic mind. Uh, and you see that term thrown around uh, a lot as well, this idea that it's a, this this mode of thinking that's very tied into to who I am, what my story is. We, we've talked about that before when we were talking about storytelling and the mm-hmm. power of storytelling and how we all kind of see our lives in this mode of story. I am the central character in my story, and these are the obstacles I am up against. These are the things I have achieved, and these are the things that I have lost. Um, so it's the, this default mode network, as it's called in, mm-hmm. in the scientific papers, not to be confused with Depeche mode network. Because nice. that, that would waver between uh, just can't get enough and black celebration. Whereas the the default mode network is again this 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 sort of idle thinking uh, zone. When, you know, it's it, it, it's in, in its better states, it's introspective, it's daydreaming. In its worst states, it's depressive. It's that that demon on your shoulder beating you up and saying, "Ah, oh, these are the things that that I don't have anymore. These, these are the things about me that suck." And and the, and oh, I'm never going to succeed in, in this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, this is where when we start talking about consciousness and defining the I of ourselves, Mm -hmm. you start to look at the default mode network because this is where you have your pastiche of memories, feelings, and thoughts. And again, that chatter, that me, me, me. What we're talking about when we talk about the default mode network is the medial uh, prefrontal cortex, the medial parietal cortex, and the medial temporal lobes. And the idea, there's a couple of different theories about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea is that these associations between these different parts of the brain 
are the brain's baseline of processing and information where we consolidate experiences and we prepare to react to the environment. The second theory is that uh, it also facilitates stream of conscious thought, also known as stimulus-independent thought, which I think is really interesting to note. Stimulus-independent thought, meaning you're not even aware of your surroundings. You're just chattering, chattering, chattering. To me, I think of it as like, you know, driving to work every day and I pull into the parking lot and go, oh, how did I get here? I don't really have a memory of that because I was so consumed with my own thoughts. Um, so it's sort of stuff that you see in daydreaming. Again, keep in mind that half of our day is spent in this state of daydreaming. Um, and, so, it, and it's important to hear it also totally takes you out of your surroundings. Yeah. Uh, you know, like on your, your drive to work, where you, you kind of go into autopilot mode and suddenly you're there. Because it's like you weren't actually on that drive to work. You were wrapped up in these thoughts of what happened yesterday or what's going to happen uh, in the, with the rest of your day. Uh, totally wrapped up in your thought life. You everything else in your surroundings, be it, you know, the the highway on the drive to work, or a beautiful park, or the the love of your family. All of it just kind of fades as this inner dialogue kicks up. And and by pointing out the parts of the brain, I think that's the really amazing part here. Uh, yeah. Is that you know, on one hand, we're talking about the devil and angel on your shoulders. We're talking <laughs> about grasping in the Buddhist sense for for things that you you want or don't have, and and all of this this inner kind of spiritual stuff. But we can actually look at the brain and and look at the part the network that lights up when the when this uh, kind of thinking takes place. Right, and this this kind of thinking does need to happen, right? Because yeah. it do, is balancing this sense of self and this ego, and again, it's giving us some sort of um, consciousness or idea of ourselves through this process. The problem, of course, is when there's hyperactivity right. in this area. It's like like when a dog has some sort of problem on its skin, right? It's going to lick, it's going to gnaw a little bit, but then it gets out of hand when that gnawing and that licking ne- never stops. When it turns into self harm. And certainly yeah. we see that time and time again in patients who have a variety of mental problems where we see that, that, uh, see this heightened activity mm-hmm. in this, uh, default mode network. Yeah, and uh, according to Dr. Charles Raison, who is also part of that talk, people with depression exhibit hyperactivity in the default mode network. So as you say, it's fascinating because you can literally point to that brain scan Mm -hmm. and you can see that hyperactivity and you can see that it's the cause of some of this depression because now think about that chattering and this... um, this idea of that that chattering is absolutely involved with self and worry. Mm-hmm. So what you have going on is is this sort of midline chatter that is encouraging a person to turn inward, and then a, in addition to that um, hyperactive default mode network, it becomes more and more entangled with the anterior cingulate cortex, which is responsible for the fear response. So not only do you have this uh, turning inward, you now have a fear factor that's involved, and this can contribute really heavily to depression. Yeah. So we bring all of this up because this is really important in terms of um, some experiments with hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. And perhaps relieving this depression, yeah. this uh, quieting the default mode network, as well as meditation. Right. And before we get into that, I do, of course, need to stress the thing about the default mode network is that uh, under normal situations, it's more active during rest than it is during task performance. So it's it's when you're in that uh, that easy state of driving to work, a road that you travel every day, or you're waiting on something, you're just sitting around. It's it's like the screensaver of your mind. But if you're busy, if you are just vigorously trying to get something done at the last minute, or you're in that state of flow, the job or a hobby that you love, or 
certainly if you were engaging, uh, say, in yoga, where you're, you're totally in your body and not in your mind, we see that network uh, shut down to a certain extent. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because there is this idea of getting outside of yourself, right? right? So if you're doing something that's in a state of flow, then you're getting outside of that chatter and that that mind, and you're quieting the default mode network. Now, this is where we're going to get a little more back into uh, into psychedelics, and I just want to do a quick note about the nature of psychedelics. Just a reminder about what we're talking about here, okay? Uh, for the most part, especially as far as shamanistic um, practices go, you know, ancient spiritual practices that date back long before ability to create synthetic drugs. We're talking about naturally occurring substances such as uh, psilocybin mushrooms, ayahuasca vines. Uh, we're talking about peyote, uh, cacti, and other naturally occurring psychoactive substances in vegetation, mm-hmm. in animals, uh, you know, toads, centipedes, what have you. And then when taken, they have the potential to, to alter virtually every level of awareness and experience. Now, some of you listening may have had some sort of experiences with this kind of altered state of mind, either naturally occurring or due to illness or any other. Lucid dreaming yeah, is sometimes. Lucid dreaming is uh, sometimes in this category. About, yeah. But for, for a lot of the, a lot of other people, you may think, you may hear about, you know, tripping on psychedelics and you instantly think of, uh, the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or any number of movies that have attempted to show an altered state of, of awareness and perception. It's kind of, kind of like Hollywood tripping. And, it's important to note that while, yes, if one took enough of certain hallucinogens, they could have this kind of very visual, crazy, fantastic experience of dinosaurs climbing out of the walls and all that. Yes, that, that's possible. But that's not, that in and of itself is just like one slice of the cake. There are a lot of other modes of perception and modes of understanding that can be altered by psychedelics. We're talking about changes in your awareness of your own body. Uh, visual peculiarities, uh, audible peculiarities, strangeness in thought, in perception, in the experience of time and self. So pretty much any way that we think or see the world can be tweaked, you know? Because we, we talked again earlier, like, what is consciousness? All right, we, what do we know about how we think and what our brain is? We know that there are chemical processes, that biological processes, and it's subject to change. You can change the way you think by looking at a puppy, or, or a cat. We've mm-hmm. talked about that before. There, there are all sorts of ways to tweak what you're experiencing and how you're experiencing the world and how you're constructing this world that you perceive. Uh, we've talked about, you know, the whole child versus adult. The child has this lamplight uh, view of the world and the, and the human has the flashlight view. I mean, all of this is, we're talking about changes in perception. And these substances, in, depending on what a person takes, how much they take, and also an individual's particular uh, biochemistry. It'll, it'll affect uh, the, that person on varying levels. Yeah, so I think it's interesting to introduce it like that because there are various ways, as you say, we can change our perception, and you can sort of do it a little bit or a lot. And certainly through something like psilocybin, that is something that will get you into that spot where you are sort of blowing open the doors of perception. Mm -hmm. And that is why scientists use it because they are trying to figure out how it is interacting with the brain, what it's doing um, to personality as well. So we talked about the default mode network and depression, then it makes sense that neuroscientists want to look at psilocybin and see what sort of effect it has on the human brain. Yeah. Now, in, another interesting thing about research into this, and we've touched on this in the past, and around the mid-50s, that's when science really got got interested in psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's also, you know, you saw the, the advent of LSD in that age. And you also saw, of course, the rise of the counterculture and all that. So by the end of the 1960s, 
you saw the the end of actual research into this because it started off people were looking into okay what are these chemicals doing how are they affecting the mind mm-hmm. and then you have Timothy Leary uh, out there be, you know again initially approaching things from a more scientific standpoint but then becoming more and more of a cultural figure and more of a shaman and less of a scientist mm-hmm. and then eventually you have people like uh, John C Lilly who are just taking LSD in their uh, in, in the tank next to the apartment in which the dolphin lives so that he can communicate with the dolphin people. <laughs> and and subsequently losing his funding because yes. eventually it just gets so nutty that they pull his funding. So you're right. It starts to get clouded with this idea that it's not a good idea to research this LSD. Yeah, culturally, politically, it just falls off right. until basically until the dawn of the 21st century. And and so we that's where we are now a decade and some change into that. Yeah, the 90s really saw a resurgence in this. Mm-hmm. And particularly in the last couple of years, too, we've seen a ton of data coming online about this. Um, but uh, when we talk about the default mode network and depression and psilocybin, it's important to talk about someone named David J. Nutt. He is a psychiatrist at the Imperial College of London. And his team recruited 15 healthy people, people that they made sure to scan beforehand and yeah, make sure that make sure they were... Yeah, no history of schizophrenia yeah, that sort of thing. that they were sound in mind and body. Um, and then they also wanted to make sure that these people had previous experience taking hallucinogens. This is key, and this is something that McLean uh, brought up in her talk as well, because you're bringing people in to experiment uh, you know, how their brains work and how they perceive things in this state. You don't want to be the, to introduce them to it for the first time, because uh, that can be a very overwhelming and frightening experience. Better that the, that the uh, test subjects have some experience yeah. with, with this altered state of awareness. Some sort of context so that they can study the effects of it better. Over a two-day period, the researchers monitored activity in the brains of uh, these volunteers as they lay in a scanner for up to an hour. On the first day, participants received an intravenous shot of the placebo solution. Uh, The next day, they got a shot of psilocybin that was dosed to peak about, uh, let me see, uh, about four minutes, and then was mostly over at about 30 minutes. We're talking about a short short amount of time here. Yeah, because the the traditional, you know, hippie way of taking these and the shamanistic way of taking these substances, of course, just to eat it, uh, which then is a gradual absorption, gradual trip that with a, that gradually. The hippie way? The hippie way. Well, you know, I'm thinking hippie, <laughs> yeah. shaman, you know, anyone who would say pick one of these things in the natural world and then eat it, that is going to be a slower uptake and then a slower fall off. Yeah. But this is introduced with IV, so it's just like a rocket ship. On a side note, too, it's probably really obvious to the participants which was the placebo and which was the actual psilocybin in this case. Yeah. Don't you think I'd, I have to guess there's not much of a placebo effect? <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, yeah, definitely. So all of the participants described kaleidoscope vision with images of bright and angular shapes. Um, the rush of the first 10 to t- uh, 30 seconds induced some fear, Nut said, but positive feelings then swept over them. And many participants said that the benefits of the experience were profound and they felt that they had moved on from where they had been. Um, so what they found when they were scanning the brains of these participants was a decrease in both blood flow and metabolism in several key areas after injection. Uh, so we're talking about the anterior cingulate cortex. Mm-hmm. So that was the one that I mentioned that uh, has a lot to do with the, fain- the fear and pain response. And also they saw that default mode network quieting itself. So what they found is that here is this way that you can dial down hyperactivity or activity in general in this area of the brain and perhaps relieve depression through this process. And on one level, I mean, how into your own problems can you be if the wall is breathing, right? 
That's <laughs> true. There's not a lot of me, me, me going yeah. on. Right? And it, it is interested uh, along those lines. One of the things that McLean mentioned is how a lot of this research she feels needs to get out of the lab and deal with because traditionally, shamanistically, the, they're not taking these substances and then watching uh, Twin Peaks in the basement. You know, they're they're not shutting their eyes and plugging in some headphones. No, they're taking them in nature. Uh, they're they're experiencing the natural world through these substances. Granted, they're experiencing a an altered understanding and experience of the natural world, but it's a rather different kettle of fish than uh, taking it inside of a closed environment. So again, someone is, is suddenly becoming more aware of what's around them and outside of themselves uh, as opposed to that same sad old story about who they are and what their, their deal is. Now, there's still the question about how long this um, this can actually affect a person, and that's mm-hmm. what they're trying to still go through this data and figure out if these are uh, long-term meaningful changes in terms of alleviating depression. And we'll talk more about that in in part two of this episode. So I did want to mention that there's another way to go about quieting the default mode network. And right now, it seems to be the best way to go about it in terms of sustaining long-term meaningful changes to your brain. And this is through meditation. Yes. And this is yeah, this is really fascinating. Uh, we spoke earlier, you know, when you when you're you're looking at the brain and activity in the brain, you can we're able to identify what's happening with this particular network. We're identifying this uh, this default mode network, and then under uh, psilocybin, we're watching the activity there decrease. But then the same thing occurs, uh, the same decretion occurs during meditation. Now it's important to note here that that uh, similar brain activity uh, in in brain scans that doesn't mean that it's the same experience. So it's not saying that that anyone going into meditation should, you know, should be seeing crazy, amazing things in their mind. Not to say that there's not that some of that isn't going on, but identical brain scans don't mean the exact same experience for the individual. Yeah, I mean, what it's pointing to, again, is that there's this quieting in this chatter area. Uh, Dr. Judson Brewer, medical director at the Yale Therapeutic Neuroscience Clinic, and his colleagues asked 10 experienced meditators and 13 people with no meditation experience to practice three basic uh, meditation techniques, concentration, loving kindness, Mm -hmm. and uh, choiceless awareness. And the team then used fMRI to observe the participants' brain activity when they were practicing the techniques and then they were, when they were instructed not to think of anything in particular. So the experienced meditators had this decreased activity in the default mode network. Uh, moreover, uh, it fa- they found out that this region of their brain was much quieter than in their inexperienced counterparts. So... We've talked about this before, the, the idea that you can actually change your brain to a certain extent through meditation, again, long-term changes. Mm-hmm. And you'll see this again and again in studies with meditators is that there's just this ability to concentrate better, to quiet the chattering mind and not wander as much. And I wanted to point this up because, again, the mind is going to wander half of our day spent doing this. But there are um, some studies that point to this idea that if you can be conscious of your own mind wandering, you can actually be a more creative individual. You can harness your thoughts a lot better. So again, pointing to this idea of meditation as a way not only to quiet the monkey mind, but also to access some really novel ways of thinking. Yeah, I mean, that's the, you listen to various gurus on this matter, and then that's always like the first step, is being able to identify the monkey mind, the egoic mind, the devil on your shoulder, whatever, however you choose to, to see, conceive the, the, the default mode network. If you can identify it when it's happening, I mean, that's, that's the first big battle, 
that, that you can actually stop and say, like, what am I doing? What, 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 are, what are my thoughts doing right now? Why am I relaying this stupid idea or this silly fear or even this very real fear? Why am I occupying my mind with it at this moment? And what else could I potentially be using it for? Right. Or if you're, you're if you realize that your brain is working, say, on a problem mm-hmm. and turning things over and over in your mind, but you know that your mind is wandering and it's dealing with this, then you can kind of have a breakthrough if you have the realization that your mind is doing this. And then instead of sort of going into the feedback loop of negativity that our brains can kind of do with certain stories that we tell ourselves, you catch yourself like, oh, this is a problem my brain is working on and, you know, maybe there's a solution here. Yeah. Because sometimes sometimes you just need to turn the dryer off and take the clothes out before the cycle <laughs> finishes. You know, um, hang them up before they get wrinkled. On the note of meditation and uh, hallucinations and psychedelic experiences, I, I will say that in Shavasana, the period at the end of yoga, mm-hmm. where one after one has done their yoga exercises for uh, you know an hour, hour and a half, whatever the the length may be, and in this state, you're getting out of your mind, you're getting engaged in your body. You're shutting down the default mode network just by putting yourself through a lot of physical poses mm-hmm. and engaging the, the physical body rather than the, the mind. At the end of that, you go into this, this state where you, you either sit or you lay back or maybe legs up the wall and you go into this, this meditative state. And, and on, on a personal note, I regularly see some really crazy stuff mm-hmm. during that period. You know, colors, um, Explosions, clouds, smoke, that kind of thing. Occasionally, um, you know, I, I see people. I don't interact with them or anything. That, that would be a, a different situation. But, um, but, but I do have these, uh, these, in a sense, psychedelic experiences during Shavasana. And a lot of people do get this. Well, and so that's sort of, uh, that's sort of a perfect way to segue into what we will talk about in the second podcast, mm-hmm. which is this idea of whether or not hallucinations are natural to humans, to all creatures on the world. Right. On the world, in the world. Um, so something we'll explore a little bit more. Yeah. So tune in for that. It'll be just another podcast. Its title will be The Shaman and the Scientist, colon, Hallucination. And it's going to pick up where this one left off. Uh, who knows? I mean, it's possible you listen to that one first. Who are we to tell you in what order you listen to our episodes? Um, you can do what you like. I'm not going to boss you around, but... Uh, but hey, these are the, the the two episodes that are dealing with uh, with this particular subject. If you have something you would like to share with us, uh, we would love to hear about it. You know, certainly on a topic like this, depending on what you have to share, we may not be able to share that with the rest of the, the listeners. But uh, totally game to hear anyone's take or experiences having to do with this subject. You can find us also on Facebook and Tumblr. Our handle on both of those is stuff to blow your mind, and you can also find us on Twitter, where our handle is blow the mind. And you can also drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you?